Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, David Lively, who serves as Senior Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations and Development and Campaign Manager at Northwestern University. Welcome, David. Thank you, Brent. Good to be here. Well, I uh, have been looking forward to this conversation. I will say I, I prepped by listening to a bunch of your podcasts again uh, that you have been uh, completing periodically and releasing with my colleague, Aaron Moran. So I've got some fresh material there just to maybe press on. Uh, but before I get into all of that, and by the way, that podcast is called Talking Shop. And if you're listening, you should go check it out. Um, but I, I really want to learn more about um, before they were stars. And in your case, what led you on your own higher education journey uh, and so take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that guy? Where was he? And what led you to Southern Methodist University? Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me today. And a second, I'm not sure I'd qualify as a star. Um, I'm, I'm not even a C-list star, so I, you know, I'm not even an influencer, what I would say. But uh, junior in high school. So first thing you have to know is I grew up in a family of educators, um, all the way from my grandparent. My grandfather was a teacher um, and my Mother is a piano teacher. My father was a music professor uh, turned fundraiser. So I grew up on the campus at SMU um, as a kid. He started there in 1973, I think, um, as a band director and then uh, was a professor of music and associate dean of the School of the Arts, the Meadows School of the Arts at SMU. So my playground was a higher education, was the college. It was a college setting and I, I loved it. Um, it's funny you say junior year because I'm pretty certain it was my very first ever job in alumni relations and development, and it would have been 1987-ish, and something in that range. And I, uh, my dad said, "You need a, you know, another summer job." I always had at least three jobs going to make enough money for my concert tickets to see Iron Maiden and Van Halen in those years. And um, I worked filing papers, donor correspondence, um, in the development office while my dad was working there. And I remember having filing all these names of people. I didn't know what they were. They were thank you letters and things. This is all in an analog world. Nothing was digitized. And that was my very first uh, ever fundraising job. And I never would have ever dreamed uh, that I would be doing this 30 plus 33, 35 years later. Um, and I love that, David. And you know, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're not a star, you're definitely an influencer uh, in the space without a doubt. Uh, and I'd argue you're a star. And I bet as much as people have, you know, followed you or learned from you, and you've been so gracious with your willingness to engage with the community and share, uh, I wonder how many people know that your junior year of high school, you were uh, filing donor correspondence. That's why we start there. Uh, but I also have to ask Iron Maiden, Van Halen, with that kind of musical um, environment, I mean, what kind of skills were you developing? What were your go-to instruments at the time? Well, my, so I have to understand my mom was a classical pianist um, and my dad was a, a trumpet player and uh, the, the founder of the wind ensemble at SMU and a conductor, um, also the director of the Dallas Cowboys band. So I, I, I was surrounded by music. My mom taught strictly classical music. So I grew up playing piano. That was obligatory in my family. I also played trumpet because that was pretty much obligatory in my family as well, at least some second instrument. Um, and so, yeah, music was a huge part of our world. Um, but my, thankfully, my older brother got me into Kiss as a little kid, and so I, I also fell in love with heavy metal that is um, expanded to just about every type of music you can imagine. So um, on that Venn diagram of a classically trained pianist and heavy metal fan, not a ton of people there in the middle, maybe, maybe more than we realize. I don't know. Probably more than you would realize. I'd say Rush is probably the, the classic example right, right there in the middle. Um, and my nephew, who just graduated from Berkeley College of Music, actually is uh, extraordinarily talented. He got my mom's sort of, um, you know, just prodigy-like genius in, in music. And he is a he's a progressive metal drummer, but he can play anything he wants. Um, it's just one of those things in our family. Music is a huge, huge thing. And I actually think it's, um, I'm going to relate it to what we do, what I do for a living as well. I think... Um, especially when you play piano, you're always using both hands. You're always doing two things at once, melody, counter melody. You've got all kinds of things going um, and it takes an incredible amount of coordination. Um, and also a lot of building blocks. I remember my dad telling me once he did a budget meeting at SMU for the, for his team. And he used Beethoven's seventh, second, second movement 
it was the seventh symphony second movement and he talked about how this first line of music comes in and then the second instrument comes in on top of it and then it keeps building on itself and that's how you build a budget is you build it from the base and that's how i think about things to be honest with you so i i had this weird perception of things uh in that environment and i think it's a very kind of logical way of approaching the world problem solving way of approaching the world it's sort of built on on that background in some strange way. I probably never thought about it until you actually asked me the question today, to be honest with you. That's why we do this. Um, okay, so your path to SMU was a short walk over uh, from what I what I can gather then. Um, but uh, tell me about the highlights of the experience as a student and maybe the nuances or the kind of unique uh, perspective of, of being, uh, you know, one of my original co-founders at Evertrue, uh, his parents were uh, his dad was an English teacher at, at Phillips Academy uh, in Andover, uh, Massachusetts, and he would refer to himself as a fact brat. So I don't know if that uh, uh, is, is uh, how you would refer to yourself in that context at SMU, but there's an element of uh, gr literally growing up on campus, which is very unique. It was unique. It was, um, yeah, I, I knew the place really well. I had gone to basketball camp there because um, I was on the basketball team in high school. I had done all kinds of I was a, a painting and drawing minor in college, so I had taken classes there, life drawing as a high school student. Um, I had done a lot of things there. I'd been to, I, God knows how many lectures and performances in my dad's wind ensemble or others. And perform, actually, as a pianist, we had had all of our recitals in the Cruth Auditorium there, so I had performed on campus. So I knew it extremely well, especially the art school. Uh, I studied history. That was my primary degree. I had no interest in doing something related to development. Um, actually, didn't know what I wanted to do. I sort of chose my path based on who I liked as faculty and what interested me. Um, and I, I, my brother was, uh, candidly, my, my parents both went there. My brother and sister and I all attended there. One of my uncles got a degree from there. My dad worked there for 25 years. So it was truly like a family business in a strange way. Um, but I, but I, I did get a job freshman year, two places I had a job at the faculty club washing dishes and bussing tables, uh, which was great because it was a way for me to get to know my history faculty. Um, and uh, also for me to you know be able to pay for going out and doing stuff. And then I got a job in the phonathon room. And so those are my two first jobs. First week of school, I got a, I was working both of those probably 20 hours a week. And uh, I, I strangely liked the phonathon. Um, I didn't ever think I would like calling for money. I thought it was a strange job. It was in my dad's office, so clearly there was some nepotism involved in me getting the job. Um, I'm not sure it was sought after, to be to be quite clear. Um, but I actually liked it. And I remember calling freshman parents, and we would get a bonus every time we got a new gift of $1,000 from a non-donor. And one time I got like 28 bonuses in one night because I got all these freshman parents, and I discovered they were all super excited to have their kids in school and happy to give away $1,000. So that's where I first did any sort of fundraising. Um, I can't say it came naturally. I just it was something that like, it was just a good job to have uh, while I was in school. And it was um, and never, again, never entertained the idea of doing this after college. I wanted to be, a, I, think I, I think I wanted to be a high school history teacher or, or maybe go on to graduate school and do something like that. So you get some exposure. I'm gonna come back to this because uh, we have spent so much time debating bonuses and incentive comp structures for gift officers. Yeah. Meanwhile, they were slinging spiffs in the 80s to student callers without thinking twice. So I don't know why we're, we're basically paying commissions to student callers without thinking twice. And then we spent 20 years having a philosophical debate about that same concept uh, for major gifts more broadly. So this is, actually, don't forget, this is also, this is my alma mater was the place where we got in trouble for paying student athletes before that was legal. And ultimately got the death penalty uh, right before I right before I started my my freshman year as a first year back. So I'm not sure if that's the model necessarily, but yeah, you're you're onto something there. I would never bring that up around a deep SMU family like you just <laughs> described, but you did, so that's fine. Um, so you're you're studying history. You've got a couple of side hustles, uh, working to pay for the concert tickets and so forth. When did you know that you wanted to? Um, you know, pursue additional education right out of college? So I, I looked for trying to think about what I was going to do when I graduated. I didn't do internships. I had summer jobs because I didn't have an opportunity to look for internships. And there aren't a lot of internships for history majors. I wasn't really interested in a, you know, so-called business career. Just, I really didn't know. What I did know is um, when I was growing up, my family had a 
family home. Uh, my grandparents had a home in, right near Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. And my favorite thing to do in the world was to be in the mountains. So after graduation, I was less interested in career and more interested in just being in the mountains. And so I moved without a job um, in a U-Haul uh, with my trailer, tra like trailing behind my, my car, my Jeep, and drove to uh, Boulder. And I, well, I drove to Estes Park and stayed at my grandparents' house and went to Boulder and put a thousand applications at every single store on Pearl Street Mall just to get a retail job, just so I could have placed enough money to actually and a job so that I could actually go to an apartment complex and you know, rent a place because they wouldn't give me a, an apartment unless I had a job. Um, so it took me three days and I got a job and I did that. And then I got a second job uh, to be able to, because Boulder was quite expensive in 1993. And, uh, and I, re I realized very quickly that as much as it gave me an opportunity to go up to the mountains and, and do, you know, go hiking and rock climbing and you know, fly fishing and skiing and snowshoeing and doing all the things I love, um, it was pretty boring working in a retail shop. And so I, I quickly decided, I think I'm gonna go back to graduate school. And um, I applied to a couple of programs. I ended up getting into Colorado State. And the same day I got, around the same week I got that job, or I got that, that uh, acceptance into graduate school. I also got a connection for a, a position at the University of Colorado Foundation, which was there in Boulder. And I wanted to live in Boulder. I didn't get into their graduate program. And so I ended up, um, uh, you know, getting a job, my first job, real job, other than like a retail job was basically at the University of Colorado. And I was like the assistant to the phonathon manager. I was literally the lowest rung on the lowest rung of the ladder at the University of Colorado Foundation. I wasn't even managing the phonathons. I was just organizing the paper cards that we would put besides the rotary dial phones in our phonathon room next to campus. And I did that all day long for and organized all the follow up and sent out all the, you know, the pledge forms and mailed everything the next day, um, but it was a job, and it gave, allowed me to, to to go to school and uh, and live in Boulder, or, you know, in arguably the worst possible apartment in the entire city of Boulder, um, at least the first few months. Um, but it was great, and uh, again, I kind of land. I think my dad had a connection through a friend at, at University of Northern Colorado, and I went to go meet Brian, um, and he said, "You don't want to work here. You want to work at CU Boulder." And, uh, and so I met with someone there and Terry Mathis, who was running the annual giving department, um, offered me a job, um, sort of amazing. So I did use my connection. My dad was able to connect me to somebody and I did, I always felt sort of t terrible about that. I don't know why most people are happy doing that. I didn't, I kind of wanted to do things on my own. I wanted to move them out of my own and make my own way, but I was happy to use that to get a job and it ended up um, being a very good thing. So you're, you're, Working by day as the assistant to the assistant manager and uh, and then pursuing the degree in history is my understanding, master's work in history. Yeah. And at what point, if at any point on that journey, do you flip from thinking this isn't just a job that's slightly better than a retail job, but this could actually be a career path? Did that enter your mind or not yet? Not yet, not at all. Um, this was a job, it was a means to an end, um, just to have an income and a steady job. And it worked great because I worked one to 10, then I eventually became the phonathon manager and I worked from one to 10 p.m. And it allowed me to go to school in the mornings and then study after I got off work at 10 p.m. And it gave me Fridays off because we didn't do phonathons on Friday. So I would go hiking or climbing every single Friday up in the mountains and kill myself on Sundays to study for the rest of the week. So and this is a remarkable I, story because you're now in your mid twenties. Yeah. Uh, you started working in advancement when you were 16. Yeah. Uh, and still at this point, you're not viewing it as a possible career path. And then you go on to like write the book about major gift fundraising. So, so tell me more about that next progression and what happened. Yeah. So I've been a reluctant fundraiser for 30 years. Um, always kind of wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, and uh, I always have a little bit of imposter syndrome um, for whatever reason. And never, and I also have this, this weird thing where I feel like I have a complete lack of imagination because I followed my dad into the same business. Um, so I, so I, you know, I'm in Colorado and I doing this job, I was just going to get finished school and then go get a, you know, get a teaching job somewhere. Um, and Summer of 1995, I'm encouraged to go to a case conference at Williams College, and it was for advancement services professionals. And at 
the conference, I ended up meeting a woman named Elizabeth Gillette, who is now my wife. And um, so we started dating long distance and uh, she was moving back to Chicago where she had gone to college uh, here in, in the city. And uh, she said, well, I'm going to be moving there. So if you want to keep dating, we should probably be in the same city. So that was a, something along those lines that was either said or is implied. Um, so I uh, with with having like two chapters left of my thesis to finish and no job, I packed up and moved to Chicago. I'm in the middle of winter and left my favorite place on earth um, in January. It was snowing and bleak and I pulled up underneath the L tracks on a, at an apartment on Sheffield Avenue, just down the street from Wrigley Field. And, and I thought, what the hell am I doing? And I had no job and I wasn't gonna be in development. I was just gonna finish my degree and try to get a teaching job in Chicago public schools. Um, and I realized they wouldn't hire me because I wasn't certified. And unlike in other states, they have a very strong union that wouldn't allow non-certified teachers, which was another two years of education. So I ended up looking for temp jobs and then full-time jobs. And uh, yet again, my dad had a connection to Ron Vanderdorpel, who was the vice president at Northwestern. Um, and I had an interview for a teaching job at a private school in the North Shore, where I had been substitute teaching for several months, thanks to a maternity leave. And I got job offers on the same day. Um, and I thought, wow, I got my job offer to teach sixth grade language arts and literature, which is not really what I had in mind. I had done my master's thesis in Elvis Presley. I wanted to teach high school kids, talk about really complex things. And this is sixth grade. And, um, and they were going to pay me $16,000 a year. Um, and Northwestern was going to pay me 33. And I said, I think 33 is better than 16. I think I'll stick with development. So that's why I stayed with development. That was a true inflection point where I would have become a teacher. Um, so I, I, you know, it wasn't because I had, you know, this grand desire to be a fundraiser. I just couldn't live on $16,000 with student loans. Um, again, living in a really crappy apartment in Lincoln Park. What was the, I love this story, by the way. Um, and, and the second time you've just packed up without a job, thrown stuff into a U-Haul, show up and uh, okay. All right. Recurring theme. So definitely there's something about risk taking or, uh, you know, there that uh, certainly you're not, you're not, overly stressed about micromanaging the perfect uh, career path at, at this point. Um, My career was always secondary to other pursuits, honestly, um, at least early on. Uh, I can't speak for now, but um, following the mountains and then following a woman I fell in love with were pretty good reasons to move. And so tell me about the role at Northwestern. What'd you do? Yeah, so I ended up um, at the law school, what is now Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Um, and I was uh, running the annual fund for the law school, and um, I had—I have to credit my experience at CU Boulder for or the CU Foundation, University of Colorado Foundation, because while I was there, I got really curious. One thing that was really interesting is I got really curious about data, and I immersed myself in Microsoft Excel and Microsoft Access to learn how to work with numbers, because you're dealing with—we were doing phonathons for all four campuses, for Boulder, the health sciences campus, Colorado Springs and Denver. And that was a massive data set. Uh, I don't know, like, I can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of people. And we, and we also went into, a, we went into an automated phonathon system. So we had tons of data available and I was trying to figure out the best way to manage the phonathon. And we increased the performance there pretty dramatically, almost exponentially over a period of time I was there. I got really good at looking at data. So I got to, and I got experience doing direct marketing, direct mail stuff, um, under, a little bit of experience understanding how reunions work. So I got to the law school and they put me in charge of the annual fund. And I was able to do all the annual fund stuff from literally our own little phonathons to all the mass marketing. And then I was responsible for reunion classes, which is where I cut my teeth and made your gifts. So I made my first ask, a major gift ask for, I guess it was 50,000 or something um, in Detroit with a law school graduate. I still remember who it is. Um, I haven't seen him since I came back to Northwestern, but um, I still remember the name and I remember the, the visit. Um, I, and I think I asked him for like 100,000 initially and he gave 75,000 or 75 and he gave 50, something like that. And I thought, wow, this is really easy. And I, then I soon learned that like my first gas turned into a gift and they don't all turn into gifts. That was a good reminder. But having been a phonathon caller, I was pretty good at rejection already. So um, it didn't bother me hearing no, but it was great to get, get the yes. and. Uh, then I worked with him to get 10 more gifts from his classmates um, at the major gift level. 
for the reunion program. And I thought, wow, this is really, this is really interesting. Then I partnered with a former attorney general who was a graduate in charge of the leadership annual fund. And he would call me over to his office and make, you know, 20 calls of friends and just kind of strong arm them to, to each give 25,000. And we just raised a ton of money and I'd, I'd never seen that happen before. So they, it was a really great, you know, I cut my teeth doing it and now I've been doing it ever since. It was a really great experience. And it was at the beginning of their then billion dollar campaign called Campaign Northwestern, which was at the time one of a handful of, you know, billion dollar campaigns um, in the country. They just, they just didn't, it wasn't a thing until around the late nineties. Well, it sounds like this is when you're starting to see it as at least a possible viable career path, even if it was a means to an end initially. Um, maybe that's premature, but but you're at least seeing the profession of advancement uh, in the context of billion dollar, you know, real major gifts type work. Um, you shared that, you know, maybe fortunate first ask that led to a nice outcome uh, and that they aren't they don't all go that way. Um, tell me about that phase in your career and the difference between getting rejected on the phonathon and getting a no in a major gift context. Yeah, I mean the the phonathon calls were so much harder because people were so rude. I mean they were they could be so incredibly rude to you on a phone because they don't see you and it's 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 not personalized. Um, and I got good at rejection. I used to get on the phone with my, my calling team. I had 55 student callers. I had to constantly hire and train students at CU, which is also really good because I managed people literally from the time I was 22 on. Um, and I used to compete with them, like try to get them motivated. So I, I, you know, I never minded rejection in that regard, or probably, let's be honest, in most things in life. Um, but uh, I learned major gifts. It's, it's a much more nuanced effort. Um, and that no, it doesn't always really mean no. And I didn't really understand that on your annual fund and no is no, I'm not interested. I'm not going to give you any money. And a lot of people you're calling have never given. I learned that you get a lot of rejection, but a lot of it is kind of like, they're trying to vet you and see, you know, see the thing. And maybe it's like, they're going to make a gift down the road. Um, but I, I, I got a lot of really good insight into kind of how people think about money, how they make money, how they, how they spend money, how they give money, are there where they are in their particular Pace, you know, place in life, the wealth accumulation phase, wealth distribution phase. And I started to learn more about the psychology of, uh, you know, donors and why they give and why they start giving large amounts and why they're reluctant to do so and what they're, what, you know, what's driving all those things as much as I can try to understand and glean that information for our visit. Any experiences where you just wildly asked for the wrong amount? Oh, yeah. I had one. At a, at a different institution, I, I asked a, a guy at an investment bank um, for a gift. It wasn't that big a gift, quite honestly. Um, I think it was like half a million dollars, which I mean is a lot of money to me. But um, this is a guy who ran a division at a major investment bank. It was in it was in Midtown Manhattan, and he just looked at me and said, "You have got to be insane." And then he called our dean and complained that I asked him for too much money. <laughs> My dean's like, "Is that a problem?" I'm like you're mad that I asked for too much money. I just, you know, we've raised a lot of money together. I think, you know, that's my goal. And I've never had someone angrier or really upset, but for that one time. Um, so in that case, uh, could just be a, a one-off situation. People are people, um, many, you know, shades and nuances, but would you have done anything different in hindsight? No. Okay. no and it was a good lesson to like, you know, like you're not going to make everybody happy. You're not going to be, you're also not going to be the, the best solicitor in each case. And so it's like, maybe I should have read that one differently and decided there's another person who might've done that ask better. And they might've had a better insight into his, his psyche. And so I, you know, I was like, you can't be so arrogant to think that you're the best person to solicit every per every prospect. Cause honestly, I've given a lot of my prospects to other people on my team. Cause I'm like, I think you're a better fit with this person even if it's one of my very best prospects who's going to give a really big gift, because at the end of the day, what I care about is the university raising a big gift. So I'm like, if I think the university is going to get a bigger gift, I'll pass that on to someone else if I think that's going to help. Um, I'm in a sort of a, a privileged place to be able to do that now because I've been here long enough and I've raised a lot of money. So there's not a lot of pressure to be, be seen as like a big rainmaker. But, um, but I also think it's, it's just smart. 
you know, my goal is my goal is the university's dollar goal. So we'll have a goal of six hundred million dollars to raise this year. So I kind of don't care how it comes in, and I have my own personal goals. But I'm like the six hundred million dollar goal is how more how I'm measured than my own fundraising goal. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. You gotta you gotta match people up in the right ways and be honest when it's not a good fit, and you know try to find someone else who can do it. What inspired you to go pursue your MBA? Yeah, so I was in at Northwestern and um, I had gotten one promotion, but it seemed like I wasn't going to be promoted again anytime soon. And I can, my wife and I got engaged, and I convinced her to move to Colorado, and that it would be a lifestyle she would fall in love with. Um, she had committed to three years, and so we moved there. And I was working at the law school, um, doing major gift fundraising at University of Denver, and uh, I loved that. I was having a great experience. But I also thought, I just don't want to do this. I want to do something else. So I'm like, I'm going to look. I looked at going to law school. And because I worked at the law school, they had a rule that I couldn't go to the law school. Um, but I could go to the business school. And so I got applied to the business school, got in, and fairly quickly after moving, after starting. And I um, was in the evening program um, and with a lot of really smart people uh, who had moved to Colorado for the lifestyle from really good schools like MIT and Princeton and West Point and Duke. These were people in my classes and my team. And so I was surrounded, and one of my friends from Jordan, uh, my friend Samar uh, Asfor had just done a program at Harvard and one of the smartest people I've ever met still to this day. So I got to be around some really incredible people and I was gonna get out of development. You know, like I was in school with two of the Coors daughters, like it was a really impressive group of people in my mind, you know, and I'm, no, I'm not, you know, I'm sure if I'd gone to Harvard Business School or Kellogg here at Northwestern to be a you know, different place, but it was a really great experience. And um, I was going to get going to for profit and do something different. This was keep in time. Keep in mind, this is like right at the tail end of the dot com boom. Um, and I remember having an accounting professor saying, you know, where's the cash? Like where everybody's talking about EBITDA, if you know what that is. And we're like, but where's the cash? Like, that's what we really need here. And these come, how are these companies going to persist? Everybody started making it. Well, it's the new economy. It doesn't work that way. Six months later, half of them were <laughs> looking for jobs because they'd been laid off. And there it was, you know, sure enough, the dot-com bust was a, was a reminder that this is a really good um, job, that it's a very stable place to be. But that, that also I started to use some of the problem solving skills that I had started to build at University of Colorado Foundation, quantitative skills. Uh, I put them on steroids in business school using the Harvard Business Study case method where you, you're solving a problem with quantitative analysis and coming up with solutions. And it was fit me perfectly. And I realized I was probably more quantitative than I was even better fit. I was better fit for that than I was for the history degree. And it just took, it just hit me. I'm like, this is it. Um, and I'm actually pretty good at this. And I'm looking at fundraising in different ways than I had ever done before, um, both from an annual giving perspective, a major gift perspective, how the pieces fit together, but really understanding, you know, the deployment of resources and things that I hadn't ever considered. And by the way, I started to understand because I was taking a lot of finance classes, um, economics classes, I was starting to understand donor incentives more. I was also understanding people's jobs more and particularly how people make money and um, to understand the way and particularly what is finance because that was where so many of the big donors came from the world of finance. It gave me a better understanding of it. So I, you know, for a period of time, I sort of understood that world. But all roads lead back to Chicago. But my wife gave me a three-year deal and um, she got a job. She's a fundraiser still. She got a job um, back here um, and uh, told me I, you know, I, I said three years, the deal is up. Um, you're about to graduate and uh, time to move back to Chicago. So I had 12 interviews, uh, 11 with for-profit firms in like marketing PR uh, or something related and one with DePaul University. And um, everybody at that time was asking me like, why would you want to leave higher ed? We're all trying to get into higher ed. It was two, with the exception of one person I interviewed with her like, why would you ever leave what you're doing. We're all trying to get out of this business and go into that, which I thought was kind of funny. And um, ultimately I ended up getting an offer from DePaul and didn't get any direct offers. I got sort of a side offer from one place and I'm like, I guess I'm going to DePaul. And um, I didn't have a lot of time to choose because we were sort of had like a month to figure this thing out. 
So I ended up back at, back in Chicago, moving yet again from Colorado in the middle of winter um, to uh, to a very wintry and cold Chicago. As you were settling into that round in Chicago, um, I was settling into my apartment at Marshfield Grace, just west of Wrigley Field, um, and starting my first job at William Blair and Company, which at the time was at 222 West Adams Street. I know and it well. I plugged into the local uh, Brown Club of Chicago, which was sort of my gateway into what I'm doing now. And uh, and so you're you're settling into DePaul. I'm settling in uh, in Chicago, uh, and and you go on to a really long run at DePaul. I mean, we're talking early 2000s through 2011, uh, ultimately uh, serving as vice president of development. What? kept you at DePaul that long? Because there's not a lot of people with that sort of profile that um, that spend nine years at a place. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the, the quick answer is the people. Um, the other answer is the opportunity to um, be creative and be trusted by my, uh, by my managers to do some new things and to really to collaborate with Aaron Moran and uh, Ron Eisenstein and some other folks who now, of course, work for you, um, who are some of the smartest people I've ever met in the business, or frankly, in any business. Um, but it was just like we, we were able to really challenge a lot of traditional assumptions. But we also stole a ton of ideas from friends at University of Washington, from, uh, from Georgetown and other places where I had friends who were working. Um, and I think it was the seeing the, the growth trajectory, getting promoted. I got promoted like four or five times in about a period of nine years. So they kept giving me new opportunities to do new and innovative things. Um, and then getting to oversee the entire development team allowed me to, to really test a lot of the assumptions and the, and the ideas that we had and to collaborate with Ron and Aaron and some others there, quite a few others on some really creative things that sort of turned into uh, the ideas that I took to Northwestern and ended up, we ended up writing about in a book a few years ago, uh, but really challenging the assumptions of the way major gift fundraising is done. Because um, I had learned, I cut my teeth at Northwestern, as I mentioned, done at University of Denver, and the model was always the same. And no matter where you went, go make a hundred and some odd visits or 120 visits and raise X number of dollars. And that was the deal. Um, and, you know, they, and the portfolio size was like, you know, 150 people or 200 people at every place and all those things were the way we did things we never challenged or questioned why and when we did when we started looking at different models we started questioning things and then we had the ability and the, the agency to actually make change and i think that made a huge difference for me i got recruited to come to university of chicago um, to go to kellogg to go to uh, loyola uh, along the way and i was like i kind of think this is going to be a good thing um, were there specific moments there at depaul where you just feel like seeds were on, you know, seeds were planted or I, you know, insights were uncovered that then kind of went on to grow into much of the work that we'll talk about as it relates to the book. I mean, were like specific aha moments or was it more of just a ongoing set of uh, collaboration and debate? I don't know. It was both. It was both. Um, there were aha moments like, um, I'll give you one, I'll give you, I'll give you a two. Uh, one, we took a site visit to UW uh, in Seattle, University of Washington. And we met with a number of people, including one of my longtime friends, Don D. Cup, who's now at uh, Seattle Children's. Um, he was head of principal gifts there before he went over to Michigan. And they were the ones who said, well, all of our portfolios are 25 people, period. And that's it. And it's people you're going to solicit like basically this year or this year or next year, I forget. And we were like, oh, wow, that's huge. That's a, that's a quite a big, that's quite a difference. I remember over drinks that night, um, probably several, uh, we, uh, we talked about that at length. Um, I had stolen a uh, accountability grid from my friend Megan Gillick, who was at Georgetown at the time. Um, and, you know, we looked at that and we talked about combining some of these things together. Um, some of the aha moments for me, though, there was one. So the aha moment was UW. The other one was um, measuring dollars as a, as a really important metric um i realized the danger in doing that so on july 7th i don't know i want to say it was probably 2006 or 2007 um 
is pre it was is before the great recession so i don't remember what year i was sitting with a faculty member and this donor prospect who had never really given a gift wasn't a graduate but was uh would would come in and teach classes with this professor in real estate finance and really loved the program he was a harvard graduate um and ran one of the big companies here in town one of the big reits just a super nice guy and um He's like, well, like David, I'd like to do a gift. And I had a little table. I said, well, we have a range of things. And I said, you know, where do you think you are in the range? And he said, I like that right there. And he pointed to $2 million, which was endowing a chair. And in fact, endowing the chair that was held by the faculty member he was, he was friends with and had been teaching with because he loved the program. He loved the students. He loved the interaction. It was more palpable to him than what he was doing at Harvard. And I thought, that's fantastic. It's my first seven-figure gift. But you know what's interesting about it, uh, Brent, is it was the seventh day of the fiscal year. It was $2 million. And he literally gave, by the way, a, a side note, he called me over to his house and he gave me stock certificates, which he executed and signed you know, on his kitchen table. And I went and put them in my bag and realized I literally had $2 million in cash in my bag in downtown Chicago. And I had like a mile to walk. <laughs> and so I quickly called a cab and was terrified I was going to leave the $2 million in the taxi. Um, but I got back to the office and I thought, I was like, whew, I got $2 million. That's my goal for the year. It's only seven days into the year. And then I thought, what's my incentive the rest of the year? Go to Boulder. Let's go hiking. Exactly. Well, and, and then it's like, if I didn't care about the institution and I didn't, you know, and I wanted to do what's best for me personally, I would sandbag every other ask that I had for the rest of the year and get everything teed up so I could get another set of gifts that would equal that $2 million next fiscal year. Because if I hit my goal and I can hit all the other goals very easily, the dollar goal was the one that's always a little bit hardest to get. I'm like, I'm set. And I realized the incentive structure when, you, when you're prioritizing dollars can get skewed because of outliers. And so people can rest and, and hold back and then actually intentionally slow play gifts for their own benefit which is not necessarily good for the institution because it, it, it's, it's inefficient in a variety of ways for, the, for your own work, but for the organization as well. And you're, you know, the, the opportunity cost of the institution was, would have been huge if I had just stopped fundraising. But that, I've seen that happen. And I've seen people, when they hit their goals, they slow down. And I don't want anyone to slow down. And so that was for me an aha moment that led to some of the ways that we created this weighted scorecard that de-emphasized dollars and emphasized number of major gifts raised over that. And th these all came from observing things and thinking through the logic of what's that incentive structure like? Why do we do that? And how do we change that? And what are the ways in which we can understand fundraiser performance across a wide group of people? And, you know, and we were a place with only like 15 major gift officers. So it was a fairly easy thing to kind of pivot and change and try and correct and, um, you know, retry and correct again and do different things. And it was that creativity. We went from raising I had this statistic in my head from 1898 to 2006, something like that. Um, they had raised like 26 seven figure gifts nominally, right? Not accounting for inflation. Um, and then the next five years, we had like 36 seven figure gifts. So, you know, from the first 108 years of the, of the school or something like that, we, you know, they had raised fewer gifts than we did in a period of like five or six years, just by changing our structure, changing the incentive structure, the goals, the performance metrics, shrinking portfolio sizes and doing things in a different way. And it was really by tweaking things and testing and trying a lot. And I think that's what kept me there. That and being able to collaborate with people I like. I liked the, I liked the people who were on the academic side of the university. I liked the donors I worked with. They were really thoughtful people. The mission was palpable. I worked with some extraordinarily bright people. And then the people on the team were great. And I think that matters more than anything. The culture of the team, if it's really good, you can keep people a long time. If it's not so good, it's gonna be a revolving door. So was the model and the structure mature enough that as you were thinking about next steps and as you had the opportunity to join Northwestern again, where they were like, okay, come do that here. Like that's the structure, that's the model, that sounds good, come apply it? Or was it more, there's an opportunity and you're thinking, hey, I'll continue to tweak this and uh, you know, maybe there'll be a chance to, to apply this thinking. I think it's the latter. Um, I was transparent because I thought if I if I am not if I'm not fully transparent with the team and with our VP, um, 
in terms of my style and philosophy of how to do this work and with the deans with whom I met, um, I'm going to come in and not be very successful. Well, and I would imagine that just the, the difference in scale and the maturity of the organization that you just outlined at DePaul presented yeah. uh, maybe a more entrepreneurial context. There was less to lose, yeah. uh, maybe less, you know, structure, uh, you know, just hierarchy, bureaucracy, whatever you want to call it to navigate. And so even if you had it, uh, you know, buttoned up, uh, you, you don't just walk into a new places, the new guy and sort of say, here you go. Yeah, I it, what I, I learned having having done some creative things at DePaul and thought carefully and also made mistakes in terms of change management um, and how to how to get the team on board with these ideas. I learned a lot of things in doing it um, by trial and error. Um, and I'd even tried, you know, I'd, we had tried some things at, at Denver as well, um, and we modified. I mean, certainly even on the annual giving side, I'd, I'd done so. I'd done, been changing things every time I go someplace to do things a little differently. But it was really the DePaul model that we took, and I knew how to come in, or I thought I should say I thought I did. I, I wasn't certain, but I thought I could come in and create a plan to do the exact type of program and the exact type of model that we had created at DePaul on a massive scale at Northwestern. I mean, massive, we're not the biggest office. We're much smaller than some of our, what I would call our peer institutions or aspirational peers. But um, we're, we're much bigger than DePaul. So what I did was I came in and I, even before I got here, I had called and or written the head of prospect research and management and said, I am going to be asking for reams of data and I don't want to freak you out, but I don't also don't want to slow play this when I get there. I want to be able to get some information very quickly to start making some analysis so I have a clear understanding of what I'm walking into because it was clear to me. What's on that list, David? Like, what's your checklist? Because you're basically saying, I'm, I'm going to come in and be a bit of an auditor. I want to audit what has happened. Give me the data. What do you want to see? So I, here's the first thing I asked for. I said, give me the size of everyone's portfolio across the institution. Then I said, how many people... Um, within those portfolios have actually been contacted at the seven figure and up level and at the six figure level. Um, how many solicitations have fundraisers been making each year? Um, and I started analyzing this and it was quickly apparent, oh, and how, you know, what's the average number of prospects within a portfolio that were contacted or seen in a given year? And here's what I learned. This was shocking to me and people were stunned and they actually were in disbelief when I shared this with the senior team here. So I, I found that of the people who, and these were, by the way, we, we tried to set the analysis up so it wasn't a gotcha moment. Like, so he said, anybody who is currently assigned to a fundraiser and has been assigned for at least three years, not like new assignments, right? Because new assignments, there might be, you might just get a pixie a name added in your portfolio. Of course, you may not have met them yet or might not have seen them a lot. So I wanted to be really clear. These are, these should be mature assignments in your portfolio. 45% of those people who were assigned with a capacity rating of a million plus upwards of 100 million, 45% of them had not been seen or visited in three years. When you look at the six figure level, 55% of those individuals had not been seen or visited in three years. They were assigned, mind you, but not being seen. And because they were assigned, they were unavailable for anyone else to see and thus lying fallow, getting less attention than a $100 donor, frankly. I call that, I call that portfolio purgatory. Yeah. It's the, the, the in-between space, and you just said it at the end. Uh, it's literally a worse experience to be in the bottom half, bottom third of somebody's portfolio than it is to just be in the annual fund. At least you might get to talk to a student. That's exactly. Well, and also, sometimes people would say, don't invite my people to events. Take them out of your annual fund appeals. So they actually get less correspondence and, and less communication than uh, or fewer communications than maybe your hundred dollar donor, which is just astonishing to me. So I oh, and the average number of prospects that were contacted within a portfolio was forty, which is funny, and um, I thought ironic because that was exactly the number I thought every portfolio should be, which is really no more than forty people. Um, and we stick with that now, which is we want people to be assigned to prospects. They are. They are planning to solicit over the next three years. They have met and seen in person and they have an actual proposal plan in our database that talks about how much they're going to ask, when are they gonna ask, what is the expectation they're gonna get, an anticipated gift, what is it for? Is it for a financial aid? Is it for an endowed professorship, et cetera? 
So you need to have all those elements or it's someone you've already solicited and they've already given and they're in stewardship and you're going to solicit them again at some point. So every one of my portfolios like that. So but it was it was clear when I shared these data with our senior team, I said, look, we have massive inefficiency. A lot of really good prospects are unknown to us um, and they're sitting lying fallow in these huge portfolios getting ignored. And we've hired all these new fundraisers, or we're about to hire a bunch of new fundraisers for this massive campaign that we just we just now have finished now. Um, but back then we were at the, the quiet phase. And I'm like, we need to give them good prospects and we need to find a lot. We need to build a big pipeline. And so we increased dramatically the number of major gifts raised per year. And what's extraordinary is during the campaign over basically a 10 year fiscal year period, um, every year, about of a 300 gifts from individuals of 100,000 plus, 220 or 230 were first time major donors. Over the life of the campaign, 79% uh, of the major donor population were first time major donors, 79%. And it wasn't like it boomed at the beginning and then it kind of slowed down. We had a sl slight blip like in the, in the middle where we got higher, but it stayed pretty consistently high. And that shows you that we had lots and lots of um, capacity to grow. Um, we just needed to engage people and continually do so. And those donors are now giving second, third, fourth, and fifth major gifts, and they tend to be much bigger. So the, even though we, we had to make some cuts in our office a few years ago, we have fewer fundraisers now, we're raising more major gifts than we were pre-pandemic with fewer people because those people are making multiple gifts, they're making bigger gifts, and it's, it's like compound interest in a way. The, 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 the efficiency with which I can work with repeat donors is, is extraordinarily high compared to people when you're doing a first time gift. And so I came in and I found my own prospects. I didn't steal a single prospect from a fundraiser. And I found two prospects who had previously never made a major gift. One biggest gift was $50,000 or $25,000 and the other was $5,000. And those two donors have collect those have respectively given since then 31 million and 40 million to the university um, and one of them ended up buying a professional sports franchise so like nobody knew who they were when i saw them they were completely unknown five thousand dollars a year lifetime giving of forty-five thousand, consistent donors since they graduated in 1985 but no contact by anybody with the exception of one attempted contact by a former prospect manager here's what i don't understand though is they sound like the kind of people that as people have described the David Lively method or model to me over the years, those people sound like the kind of people that would have been squeezed out of somebody's portfolio so that you could focus on the 40 better known, you know, better qualified, you know, obvious prospects with none of the folks lying fallow like those sound like the kind of people that would have been lying fallow and then would have been pushed out why isn't that the case that's exactly what happened so the prospects that i found most of them were when we forced people to so we we did this analysis i shared the analysis that i mentioned a minute ago uh, about the ignored prospects the ones lying fallow and then we talked about performance metrics and getting away from visits and de-emphasizing dollars and focusing on gifts and asks and then creating better metrics in the system and actually cleaning up the data. We weren't even we weren't even putting a lot of proposal data in the database because people weren't tracking solicitations. It wasn't even a metric. I was asked earlier on a side note, how many solicitations do we make each year? And I said, we don't know. And my boss said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, we've never tracked this. We have no idea. He goes, well, we had a number last year. I said, that was an assumption based on how many people we think are being solicited by each fundraiser across the institution. It's not based on any real data. So. Um, we forced people to, to shrink their portfolios and focus on the people that they thought they could solicit over the next 36 months. And you can have basically no more than 40 or 50 people in your portfolio, right? And when that happened, these names of donors, now donors that I mentioned to you, they had both been assigned to other people, but completely ignored. So they were truly lying fallow. And one, the, the, the one who gave $40 million went from 5,000 to 40 million, had been assigned to someone at the law school and the fundraiser at the law school had never reached out to them because he inherited this big list of names and it was just a name on a list of paper. I think he had sent one email, never got a response. Yeah. And so what we did is we freed up all these, we, all these prospects in what we call our open pool were now fair game. We created good air traffic control systems to make sure we knew how to avoid lots of people stepping on toes. But now I could go and see blind spots because I was new. I could see all these prospects. I'm like, 
oh, there's some really good prospects in this market and that market. Um, or, you know, so I'm going to start finding people that had previously been ignored. And I was able to build an entire portfolio that way as an associate VP at the time, um, just from looking where nobody else was because I was new and I could see the blind spots. Tell me about the first visit or the second visit with that individual who had gotten a single email is a loyal $5,000 donor. Because I mean, like what you're describing is kind of what keeps me up at night and what I think about constantly, which is like literally the difference maker, same person, same well, same context, same university, same brand, actually already love the place. Like everything's the same. The only difference is a human being getting to know them and learning and challenging and inspiring and doing the work that leads to transformational philanthropy. And so it's like, how many people like that are just sitting there still in 2023, not getting that experience? How many billions of dollars of philanthropy are just waiting to be unlocked? And then obviously we're trying to figure out what can we do to make it harder for people like that to fall through the cracks, to make it easier for the fundraisers to have more personalized interaction with more people without sacrificing, you know, authenticity. And so I don't need to get into all of those weeds, but just yeah. walk me through that, like the difference of you being in front of that person versus everything that had happened up to that point. Well, I mean, it, my first meeting took a couple months to schedule because this person, this couple was very busy. They were both graduates and it was clear 98% of their giving had gone to one area of the institution. So I, put, I brought the head of that division to the to the meeting and um that person had to be late for a series of reasons so i got to start dinner with them i'm here in evanston and uh i, I learned their entire life story and quickly became apparent this is not a million dollar prospect this is at best or at worst a 15 million dollar prospect maybe and then we ended up asking for 40 million and they said yes um but i learned a huge amount of information about them and it's not like they hadn't been philanthropic to other organizations. They just hadn't been at that level and they hadn't been doing it in a public way. And so, but the key is like, it's all that information you have to learn and glean, but it's really just I mean, making that call. And it, I have the same, you know, dread and fear of who are we missing constantly. We have 16,000 rated unmanaged prospects. And the biggest challenge is, even if I could qualify another 200 of them, I don't have enough fundraisers, major good fundraisers to engage any more prospects. We are at capacity. So we need more people asking for gifts. If you, were, if you said what you just said at your case study method at the University of Denver MBA program, yeah. somebody else would raise their hand and say, well, I've got a simple answer, David. Hire more fundraisers until you can't, until you can't generate 600, 800, a million dollars a year per fundraiser, but just hire them in perpetuity. That's what any company would do. Yeah. So then you take that to the leaders of the, you know, the, the, the Northwestern trustees who run their businesses that exact same way and say, yeah, I would hire as many sales reps or as many financial advisors as I could until it was not profitable to do so anymore. Well, I think I think the answer is politics and perceptions. Um, I agree with you 100% and we could hire a lot more people. And the thing to understand when you do that, when you hire a lot more people, is that they're not immediately successful. Um, unlike a sales culture at a for-profit company where people are buying a, you know, a widget or whatever it is, that's because people need to buy these things. Even if they don't know they need to buy them, you can create a market for that. We're, we're, se we're, we're selling an intangible that nobody needs to do. Nobody needs to give away their money, technically, right? So, um, but there's huge opportunity. So it takes about two to three years to get up to what I would call a mature level within an organization to be successful. And we've actually done longevity analysis here. I partnered on a project with a friend of mine named Naveen Vinaconda, <coughs> uh, who's at Wake Forest. And he did this really awesome um, analysis showing how much more successful fundraisers are in year two than year one in years three through five, then year two. And by the time you hit year 10, like your, your productivity, your, the size of gift is much bigger, probably eight times bigger. And the number of gifts is something like eight times larger or seven times larger. So I, I forget the exact details, but we've looked at this. And so we know like new fundraisers are pretty, they're a cost 
to the institution. So you have to have the patience to do that. That's one problem. People want immediate gains and we're not an ATM and we're not a, a sales team in a traditional sense, although we are a sales team in, a, in maybe a non-traditional sense. Um, so that's the first thing. Also, trustees and parents and uh, you know politicians are angry about administrative bloat at universities because they and they are worried about the cost of higher education. And so they're like, well, why is, why is education grown so expensive, right? Forgetting the discount rate and all the things we may know about the actual cost to most people who are middle class families. But for upper middle class families, it had certainly got the, the value has gotten more expensive on a relative basis. Um, but it's, you know, it's a lot of it. A lot of the growth was in the administration. We're part of that. So it's, it's you know, it's really hard to provide to keep growing to the extent that you can i think this is my opinion because the politics of it both inside the academy and um even around the us are really tricky um because they see all these administrators uh including fundraisers you know and they're like well how much are we paying for that you know and our budget is probably from what i understand half of what some of our peers is um but it's significantly higher than a lot of our you know a lot of other institutions around the country um, so those are the reasons we're not, we probably haven't just thrown more resources at it, but I, I've done some analysis of those. Like if we were to hire 55 more fundraisers, you know, based on the longevity analysis we have, knowing sort of what they raise in terms of the number of gifts and the median size gift over a period of, for each year that they're here, coupled with the attrition rates, knowing how many of them are going to leave and we have to start from scratch again over a 10 year period, I have some pretty good numbers on that. And I'm ready to show those, you know, to illustrate it. And I think that's the kind of analysis we have to yeah. do. And, yes. and frankly, what's weird about our business is we're in a numbers business to an extreme degree because we're, we have just reams and reams of data. Um, but fundraisers aren't always comfortable with data um, and the analysis that is required and presenting the analysis in a thoughtful way. And so, you know, I, I wish we could teach that skill because fundraisers are extremely good at being relational. At least I'll say major gift fundraisers are really good at being relational, but they're not always comfortable talking about numbers, especially with people who are deans and heads, presidents or chancellors, because guess what? They're scientists or they're economists. They're people who live with numbers and data and analysis, and they'll run circles around you if you're not comfortable talking about numbers and data. Um, and so I think it's, it's important that we have the kinds of support and training to make sure advancement leaders understand the data, use it thoughtfully, challenge their own assumptions, and come to the table with really good strategies that are, that are, that are informed by the, by the metrics and the data. Well, to your commentary around, is it a sales organization or not? I, I would say that like the math is even more important and more compelling in the philanthropic world because there is no sales team on earth where they have a product where they sell it for $5,000 a year for 10 years, and then the following year, it's a $40 million sale <laughs> ever in the history right. of the world. One industry philanthropy. The closest to that would be the gaming sector where you could have penny slot players and high rollers. Yeah, Those are like the two industries on earth where this exists. And then you look at the way that math and systems uh, are, are integrated throughout the gaming world in comparison to what we are trying to do in the philanthropy world and there's just no comparison but, there's none. but you know but it's like, like your to your point i wish one of the there's i have like two wishes i wish i could do um one is to get rid of annual appraisals and do a three to five year appraisal on an ongoing basis once someone is up to that level because the, an annual appraisal is a crude metric because 12 months is you know fundraising is lumpy so if we could find ways to under measure performance for fundraisers based on the longevity and performance and see who are the really top performers based on their performance over a period of time. Um, and that would be that would allow you to understand those fundraisers who are able to identify prospects who are giving X, but can jump to Y very dramatically, Y being a much bigger dollar, because that's the kind of like those that's the holy grail, right, is who's able to see the capacity, you know, of prospects and get them up to that level. Um, and I that's, that's one of the things I wish we could do. Um, so, so, and we just, we don't have that luxury and we don't have people talking about that, unfortunately. What inspired you to write the book? When was the moment you decided to consider doing it? And just tell me the highlights of that experience. Yeah, so about 15 years ago, at DePaul, I started, um, I, I was invited to be on a, 
at the case conference panel, like on the faculty with um, some other fundraisers. And I decided uh, to show our results because we had had this dramatic increase in productivity. We, you know, we increased the number of major gifts, some huge amount. I can't remember them because this is over you know, you know, 15 years ago or more. Um, but it was a massive growth with fewer fundraisers. We actually had fewer people on staff and grew our, our performance dramatically. The dollars went from something like eight to $10 million a year to $35 million a year, plus a big outlier of a naming gift for the business school that was 30 million on top of that. So we had a really growth in our run rate. And I'm like, how do we show this to people and explain it? So I put this PowerPoint together and I started presenting it. And you know, and of course, being in a smaller school with a smaller team, Everybody assumed it was just because we were a smaller team, we were nimble, and we were so below capacity, that was the only reason it would work. But I kept getting objections, and I kept answering objections, thinking about people's you know, criticisms of our, of our efforts and objections to the way we were approaching it. And I would try to think through the logic on that, and I kind of tried to square the circle and say, what, what is the logic on this whole thing comprehensively? And I kept doing the presentation after I got to Northwestern, and we had the exact same sort of growth at Northwestern that we had at DePaul, um, which was astonishing. So we had this massive increase in the number of major gifts. We, we went from raising on average about $200 million a year to something like $500 million plus a year. Um, we increased the scale, but I looked at 20 fundraisers specifically to say, okay, like this is our um, same store sales analysis, right? These are 20 fundraisers working in the old way of visits and dollars. Now this is 20 with a massive portfolio of 120 people or so. Now it's, you know, same fundraisers focused on gifts and asks um, with a small portfolio of 40 and their number of in gifts increased by 200% and dollars by 600% over a period of two years, right? Um, from FY12 to FY14, massive growth. So I could start showing these and I could start answering all these objections around 2014, 2015. And I got to the point where I, I sort of got tired of answering these questions constantly, the same questions at conference after conference, because I deliver the same content, but just updated every year. And finally, I thought, what if I just wrote it all down? And then I could just sort of refer people to the book, like, David, what about this? I'm like, just go read chapter three, because it says it right. Because I tried to think through every question people have asked me over time and answer those questions, because a lot of them are really legitimate, because we it was, it was turning upside down the way we do our work, but I thought turning it upside down in a way that made people more, more successful and thus happier in their jobs. And that was the case here. We've had incredible longevity on our team because we have a lot of happy fundraisers raising a lot of gifts and enjoying the work they do. And we promoted them because we knew they were really good because we were having objective metrics and we, and they were being successful. I love it. Um, and, and, you accomplished that. You were able to write the book and point people to it. And many people have looked to it. It's gotten referenced on the podcast many times. Um, and I would imagine that it sparked relationships for you or, or just helped you build new friendships as people have, have learned and, and reached out and, and, and any lessons there. Maybe we have folks listening who are thinking, I'd love to write a book someday, but I'm just not sure I'm, I'm ready. Uh, maybe I feel that way. Well, first thing I'll say is it introduced me to a lot of really, really smart people um, who are much smarter than I. And like there are some people in the analytics team at, Indi at the University of Iowa who are just just incredibly bright. And then my friend Naveen at Wake Forest and others who I love it. Like the, Naveen and I met because he I wrote an article about fundraising and COVID. And he's like, I think you're wrong. He wrote me an email and I'm like, I love it. Let's talk. And so I, I, I've gotten to know a lot of people over the years doing this. Um, and they've all been just so helpful to me in helping to, to frame my thinking about a lot of other things beyond the kind of things I'm known for in the book. Um, and I've had a lot of great mentors. Um, you know, certainly my dad is my, my, my main mentor as a fundraiser, but even my, my current boss in certain ways, Bob McQuinn is an extraordinary fundraiser, watching his relationship with the former president and their ability to raise money. Um, Lynette Marshall, who's the head of the University of Iowa Foundation, who's one of my favorite people in the world, it's just the classiest person I've ever met in, in fundraising. Um, Jerry May from, from Michigan retired, kind of took me under his wing for a little bit and, you know, over a couple of conferences. And I've just gotten to watch people who are really good and I have a better understanding of leadership. And I think I got a lot of exposure because of the book, because um, people invited me to speak. I don't think I would have had that opportunity. Um, and they taught me a whole lot more about um, leadership and management. 
than I would have ever learned had I not written the book just because I had the opportunity to get to know them. So that's, that was a really great byproduct of this, quite honestly. David, you've been so generous uh, with your time today, but I just have one last question. Tell me about life as a Northwestern dad. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, my daughter just finished freshman year. I literally moved her back into the, back home from the residence hall yesterday. Um, she finished her final exams. Um, and I will say being a parent at the school that I work it has been a really wonderful and extraordinary experience. Um, I, I've worked here 11 and a half years and I, I love the place, but I love it so much more now because it's so much, it's, it's, I have such a closer um, affinity to this place. And I, I've gotten to know, I knew some of her faculty members, her Russian lit professor and I traveled through Europe together and he's incredible. And I'm like, you gotta take Saul's class, he's incredible. And she did, and she wrote me a text, her first day of class, Saul's class. I just finished his first lecture, dad, it was magical. And this is Russian literature from a data science major, you know, like this is a kid who's like, she just was passionate about the education. And I couldn't believe I convinced her to apply, much less that she got in and got to go here. So it's, um, it, I'm very blessed um, that I get to watch her. And I understand um, that her experience, because I know it as, a, as an administrator, but now I'm watching it as a parent, her experience is extraordinary. And I'm, I'm happy, I can say in, in, in completely honestly that this is a great institution and I'm just really lucky to be here. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And, and I hope that she's um, filing donor correspondence in a cabinet soon, uh, you know, nights. Well, my niece, my niece got a job without me knowing it as an intern in our office with a case fellowship. And then my daughter got a job um, with some other uh, nonprofit cleaning up their fundraising data. And I didn't even know that she had applied for it. So, um, well, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to encourage her to keep doing this because there's you know, three fundraisers or four fundraisers in the family is enough. Um, between my sister-in-law, Amy Lively, my wife, uh, who's at Lincoln Park Zoo and me, there's enough of us in the family probably, but, um, but she's having a good experience. Well, David, thank you so much. I look forward to continuing to get to know you and learning from you. And thank you for sharing with our community today. Um, for folks that, uh, you know, aren't already connected to David, you know, find him on LinkedIn, check out the book. Uh, you know, other articles and materials are available online. And um, thanks for uh, the way that you've challenged the profession to think different and dream bigger. And uh, here's to, to good work ahead, David. Thank you. Well, Brett, thank you. And I just to say, you have an extraordinary team. I've gotten to know a handful of people in addition to Aaron and Ron there. Um, and you're, it's a great organization. And um, I've, been, I've been thrilled and honored to be part of it. So thank you for today. Thanks so much. And with that, I'm going to close today's episode with David Lively, who serves as Senior uh, Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations and Development and Campaign Manager at Northwestern University. Take care, everybody.